0: Well, welcome, Dale. Welcome to the podcast, Uncut and Real Raw. Um, this is my guest, Dale Klapmeyer. Is that correct, that's, Dale? That's correct. Very good. Well, thank yep. you for being on, Dale. Yeah,
1: appreciate being here.
0: So, Dale, just a little bit of uh, recap for the audience watching and listening. We didn't know each other until five minutes ago, and we are introduced by a mutual friend of ours called Randy Massey. Randy Massey is a great friend of mine, has a lot of cow horses with me, loves great horses, very successful entrepreneurial man himself. And when I told him about the podcast that I was wanting to interview people that were very successful in life and business and success, he said, you have to talk to this guy, Dale. Okay, so that's how (laughs) kind of we came apart, you know, together here. And that's kind of a little uh, pre-context there. Mm -hmm. So, Dale, for the people at home and for myself, basically, I'm going to do this in a nutshell. So, if I butcher some of this, no offense. But basically, you're the inventor, and we're going to, in common terms here, you were the inventor of the Cirrus aircraft. Is that pretty much the best way to describe what you are?
1: Yeah, but I, you know, you got to put it together. It started with my brother and I.
0: Your brother and so, you. Yep. So just in common terms now, I, didn't know, I don't know a lot about planes. I have a lot of buddies that I own them. I figured out it's much cheaper for yep. me to use their planes <laughs> than I own my own. <laughs> That's always the case. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Cirrus, for the people who don't know, is an aircraft. It's basically a four-seater aircraft, a five-seater aircraft. But basically, for common layman's terms, has a parachute. It's one of the. O- Is it the only
1: plane that has a parachute, or one of the few? It's the only certified production airplane with a parachute that comes standard.
0: Right. So basically, it's a small plane yep. that seats roughly four people. If you get into trouble, shit hits the fan, whatever reason, you can pull a lever, and basically a parachute comes out, and it will direct you to the ground. Is that correct?
1: That that's in, in, com-
0: in layman's terms, I know there's yep. a lot more technical shit than that.
1: No, but in in The simplest way, there's a handle on the ceiling, which is, I suppose, would be like a ripcord. Mm -hmm. You grab that handle, it activates a rocket that pulls the parachute out from just behind the cabin. And the parachute then takes the entire airplane and lowers the airplane to the ground. When you pull that parachute, you can't disconnect it. There aren't any retakes. You can't say, I didn't really want to do that. When you pull it, you're done. The airplane's going down. You have just given the insurance company your airplane. Fair enough. But it's there to protect the people inside.
0: Yes. So if if the pilot had a heart attack, passed out, something happened, a passenger can pull this handle as well,
1: correct? Yep. It's right in the middle where anybody can reach it. Right. Okay. Okay.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was told, and again, it might be a true rumor or not true rumor, that this is actually the most popular four-seater plane in the world. Is that right or wrong or
1: uh, there's nuances to that. Okay. I mean there's the most popular would probably be a Skyhawk because there's 40,000 of them because yes. they've been in production forever. Okay. We are the best-selling single-engine airplane in the world. Okay. Now, you, you
0: also have another airplane that I've heard is very successful, which is a single engine jet. Is that correct? Yep. yep. And does that seat four or five people? How many people does that seat?
1: That seats what, what we call it is a five plus two. Mm-hmm. So it will seat seven okay. as long as two of them are children under 90 pounds. Okay. Right. Up. And that's the
0: second main part of this plane, this company, correct? The yep. Cirrus Aircraft. Okay. Yeah. So basically that was kind of you, you know, we'll get into it, but that's the contents of this show is you and your brother and we're about to learn about your life story, basically built this company up to what it is today. Because one thing for sure, any, I love asking questions to pilots and people that own planes. Everybody knows what your planes are. Everybody knows what they are, everybody ooos and ahs over them. Even the people that I've found, the odd person that doesn't like them, when you really push on it and say, why don't you like them? They really just say it's money. You know what I mean? They, can't, they, they, they might bitch and say, well, it's, it's overpriced. But reality is when you push them and say, well, is it not quality? No, it's, best of, it's the best in line. Does it do anything wrong? No, it's the best of what they do. When you, when you keep pushing them a little bit, they really fold pretty cheaply, you know what I mean? And so even the haters, when I dig for information of what you don't like about, because I was seriously thinking about buying one of your planes. You know, Randy Matsey's got one. I've been, I flew in quite a few of the Cirrus planes yep. and I've liked it. And I seriously thought about getting my own. And um, and so I asked when I'm going to get into something new, especially, you know, spending the kind of money. what is it, 1.2 million to get into one of those planes, somewhere around that?
1: Well, no, there are, we have a, uh, a smaller engine version of our single engine piston. You can get into that for about a half a million. Okay. And up to about 1.1 for a turbocharged, you know... The, top of the, the line. Top of the line. That's what
0: Randy would have, correct? Yep. Top of the line. And yep. I've flown in his quite a bit. Okay. Yeah.
1: And then on top of that, then the next level up is our our jet, division jet.
0: Yes. So I was thinking about seriously about buying one, but I whenever I get into something new, I ask millions of questions, I try to pick it apart, I want everybody's yep. opinion, and I could hardly get anybody to say anything negative about your product. You know, the biggest negative I found, which was pretty damn small, was the price. And when when I dug into that more they really didn't couldn't say it wasn't worth it. They just didn't like it. Does that make sense? And everybody's got to have their haters. Okay? Well,
1: we're we're competitive yeah. at the price. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. So so it's very, very popular. And anybody in the flying world would know who you are. So just for context, the so people aren't into planes, that's why we're just having this little brief introduction of what it is and so forth. So what I'm really interested in, this plane's popular all over the world from what I understand. Yep. The jet, the 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 single engine prop, et cetera. I wanna know where it all got started. So let's go back where'd you grow up as a kid
1: grew up in a town called dekelb illinois okay you've seen the flying era corn dekel bag yeah. that was from our our home hometown yeah so it was uh so farming from community. chicago
0: north south east or west
1: we are 60 miles straight west of chicago okay right so in the middle of corn country
0: fair enough grew up there as a kid <clears throat> And how did you get into planes? How did this whole thing get started as far as were you always interested in planes as a kid, went through high school? You had your, your, your dad a pilot? Somebody had to give you this bug, or you, did you just come up with it?
1: No, no. You know, flight was a part of the family. Okay. So my uncle was a pilot, and the first time I was in an airplane was with him, or the first time in a small airplane, was in my uncle's airplane. He had a float plane in, in Minnesota. And... You know, when we were kids, he took the back seat of his, in his airplane, took the back seat out and had a cooler there. So we'd fly up to his cabin and, you know, the kids, we'd be sitting on the cooler in the back (laughs) of the airplane flying up to uh, the lakes in very northern Minnesota. What kind of plane was it? It was a Cessna 180. Okay. So so it's a, you know, a utility, more of a utility-based airplane, great, great airplane. Now, a that's... Fantastic float plane.
0: Yes. That's the kind of plane to get started flying, isn't it?
1: Well, no, no. No? you would start in a single engine trainer or something, probably smaller. Okay. You know, that's, that would be um, an ideal family airplane, especially if you're going in and out of shorter strips or, in his case, a float plane. Yeah. You know, it can carry a lot, it can get in and out off the water. You know, it's a, it was a great airplane. But even backing up before that, so it, so my uncle learned to fly and got his pilot's license as soon as he was old enough to. My grandfather had a dairy, uh, he built pasteurizing equipment okay. for the, the dairy industry in central Minnesota. And even starting back in the 30s, he owned an airplane. He was never a pilot. But he had a pilot and a small airplane, and they'd actually land in hayfields next to dairies, and he'd go in and either sell his equipment or he might be there to work on equipment and that type of thing. So he used uh, very small general aviation airplanes from Did the Did he fly him himself or somebody nope, flew him in? No, nope, he had a pilot. Huh.
0: He never yeah, learned That's kind of pretty visionary back in those mm-hmm. days to be basically a traveling salesman to some degree yep. and be have enough vision to say, hell, I'm not going to fucking drive. I'm going to fly and I can get to twice as many places. Surely nobody else was doing that.
1: I don't know if anybody else was doing it in his industry. Yes. But yeah, it gives you an opportunity to beat yes. the competitors to the to the opportunity. Yes. And that's where aviation makes sense. Yes. So as I... Grew. I, I suppose I would say I, I followed my, my brother, Alan. Yeah. Who, he and I started the company together.
0: How old's your brother?
1: He's three years older than I am. Okay. So, I'm the little brother yep. following him around. If you don't mind around. me asking, how old are you? I'm 61. Okay, I'm
0: 47. Right on.
1: So, I, I was the little brother following him yep. around. We always built model airplanes and you know, loved everything about airplanes. When we were small, riding our bikes ride out to the airport to see if there's any cool airplanes there. You know, always following, following the industry. Like um, you would,
0: as a, even as a kid, look at airplane magazines, follow oh yeah. clubs. Yep. Anything to do with aviation, you and your brother really, you know, enjoyed it.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. So when my brother, Alan, wanted to learn to fly, my parents said he couldn't learn to fly until they did. So both my parents got their pilot's license I was, I think, 10 at the time. Alan was 13, so that's when he wanted to, you know, he was really, he was getting close. You know, he could start yeah. doing ground school and that type of thing. And that was enough to get my parents to fly. So uh, they bought a, a Cessna, 1960 Cessna, and that would have been, I think, 1970, 71. Yeah. So from the time I'm 10 or 11, we're traveling more in the airplane now than certainly than we did before and Mm -hmm. you know so I in a sense grew up in the back of the airplane from that so what did
0: your parents do for a living then if mm -hmm. your grandfather did the dairy equipment what did your parents do
1: we do come from a very entrepreneurial family
0: okay so genetically so what are they what are are they mm -hmm. into
1: so my parents were into uh, nursing homes okay he owned three nursing homes and again a very interesting story my My dad was a youth director at a very large Lutheran church Mm -hmm. in the town of DeKalb. DeKalb is also the home of barbed wire. And there were a couple of very large mansions in town. One was the Elwood Mansion, which was turned into a museum. And you could go walk through this, you know, 1960s, 1860s, beautiful home. The other, about six blocks away, was donated to the church. And now think about this. You know, I don't know how big it was. Say it's 20,000 square foot, 100 year old home. Donated to the church. They discussed what should they do with this, this home. Since my dad works for the church, he said, well, why don't we turn it into a place for the elderly in our congregation? And instead they tore it down and turned it into a parking lot okay which uh you know i like to say pissed off my dad maybe yeah. didn't not necessarily pissed him off but disappointed him uh-huh. and he, lit he, a fire. Did, he did enough work into into it to realize well there's a market for this That's awesome. so he went i mean he's a youth director yeah you know you don't get to rub two nickels together Yes, as a youth director.
0: But, what he, what, but the key thing that I just heard there is he saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity. People are getting born every day. There's babies being born every day, and there's people dying every day. And, yep. and whether you like to talk about it or not, that's a fact. People yep. are getting born, and people are dying every single day. What I love right there is your father looked at something that somebody else said, we're not doing it, and basically scrapped it. Yep. But still saw an opportunity there. That's what I like right there. That, a lot of opportunities don't just drop in your lap. You have to look. You have to be looking. You have to have an interest. You have to have a passion for something to grab a hold of. And that's what I heard right then is that he saw something and said, "I'm going to dig into it some more." So what happened?
1: Um, and actually, to follow on that, mm-hmm. the the real point is he grew up uh, in a family where. You know his dad took risks and started a small yes. business and struggled through that and made it a successful business my dad started going literally door to door to raise money for a home for the elderly his business plan was it's for people who can afford to pay to come yes there's a county home there if you're on if a government assistant there's already a place for you yep He wanted to build something special, and he had, not a background in it, but an entrepreneurial background that he wasn't afraid to take a risk. Yes. See, and
0: that's what I think, Dale, in my opinion, people that, I think there's two types of people in the world. There's people that should own businesses, and there's people that shouldn't own businesses. And if there's anything that I could tell to the people that shouldn't own businesses is the people that don't own businesses, I think they underestimate or don't see how much risk people take in the beginning starting businesses. Usually they're starting like your dad, no capital. They're trying to go raise it. They, they have to take mortgages out on their homes. Like they're, they're nuts are on the chopping board a little bit, oh yeah. which I think is a big part of why a lot of them are successful because when you got skin in the game, and you don't get to eat if this thing doesn't work, you're sure motivated to do a 15, 16 hour day. You're sure motivated to work Sunday. You're sure motivated to do some things that are pretty damn uncomfortable to get this thing up and running. I think a lot of people when they see a business that's very successful and making a lot of money, they have this illusion that it just started like that. If it was that fucking easy, everybody would be doing it. You know, everybody would be doing it. So, (laughs) So when he was going door to door, was he asking for them to buy into it like
1: a timeshare or what? No, no. He was looking for investors. Yes. He was looking for enough people to back him to actually be able to go get loans from the bank. Yes. To, to get started, he so was looking money. for advice. I mean, yeah. he was working for a, a church. He didn't. He wasn't running a business. He didn't yeah. know how to run a business. He was looking for people that would stand with him and mm-hmm. and help him, help him learn. Yep. Yeah. Because there's with any business, you know, you, we all start a business. Um, maybe this is an arrogant way to look at it, but we, we so often start thinking, well, we got all the answers. Yeah, We, we got this. Ah, no, you don't know a damn thing when you start. You got to be smart enough to learn as you go through it.
0: Yeah, but I always say, that's true, Dale, but I almost think you got to be somewhat arrogant to start businesses because there's enough fucking roadblocks in your way. And there's enough potholes, Dale, But if you don't have some gumption and some arrogance and I'm better than you attitude, yeah. you'll quickly quit. You, starting you a business to... is not for the fucking faint hearted, is it?
1: You got you to gotta be willing to take the risk. Yes. And actually, Alan would sum it up. He, he had a great way of describing it. He said, starting off is you're jumping off a cliff mm-hmm. and there's water down there. You just hope it's deep enough. Yes. Because you don't know until no, you, you hit the know. wall. No, but you don't you know. But you jump, and you know you you yes. do it. But once you jump, I mean, you've jumped. Yes, you have jumped. You've jumped. As financially,
0: mentally, etc. And that's where I, I. It's it's not for the faint-hearted. Right. If you're if you're a scared kind of person in life, I, owning your own business is not what you need to do. Get a paycheck, sign the back of the check, forty hours a week. That's your job but you're never gonna get ahead financially. You're never gonna have any real retirement, in my opinion, playing it safe. You know, when you sit in the middle of the fence, you get splinters in your ass. You gotta pick a team. Are you gonna be on the risk team and go get it? Or and that, or, or on the scared team that won't go get it, they'll play it safe, which nothing wrong with that to some degree, but don't bitch that you don't have the money, the retirement, don't have the lifestyle these other people have got. You're either one team or via the other team.
1: Yeah. and I, I actually look at it slightly different, or I, yes. I think of it slightly different. Uh, if you're starting the business because you're looking for that lifestyle, mm-hmm. I'm going to start this mis- business because I'm going to make a whole bunch of money, yep. your chances of success are probably pretty low. Okay. Because you don't start a business thinking, oh, I'm going to be rich. You start a business because you're passionate about something. You yes. understand yeah. something. You want to do it. And you think
0: you can do it and better than somebody else. You
1: think you can do it better. And yes. Or a better way of doing it. Yeah. If, if, if you're doing it for money,
0: mm-hmm.
1: man, it, it's a tough life Yes. for the money. Yes. You, know, you got to do it because you love what you're doing.
0: Clinton's grabbing a cocktail and we'll be right back. Get yourself one and enjoy this short clip. People are attracted to genuine and authentic people. That's what. And Now, people either love me or hate me. I get it. I'm real polarizing, and I'm okay with that. There's lots of people that hate my fucking guts, and I'm not mad about it. Don't get upset because I say, good luck. There's somebody else out there you will like. Other people like me the way I am, but, but you can't please everybody. So I quit trying years ago, many years ago, to try to please everybody because the more you try to please everybody, the more pissed off everybody gets. And the more unhappy you are because of it. Yeah. So you mostly just be who you are and let it fall where it falls. Yeah. So yeah. tell me, your dad got it up and running and what happened to his first nursing home? How did he? Uh,
1: he became very successful. Mm-hmm. They started with uh, a 60 bed nursing home and then doubled the size of that one. And from there... Went to the next town and built And one. this would have been in what, the 60s, 70s, 80s, when? Uh, early 60s. Okay, early 60s. So I think they opened, we opened our place in 66.
0: So do you know if this concept of a nursing home for better off people or more financially successful people was that even a thing back in the day or your dad really kind of created that you know i'm not saying create the whole industry but what i'm saying is was it popular did anybody ever heard of it i agree that there was probably government assistant housing but was this a new concept back in that time
1: you know i i can't answer that <coughs> fair enough it was certainly new in our area area yeah there was no other opportunity for assisted living or nursing care yeah you know in, in the early 60s you had the county home mm-hmm. and you had your family yes and and it was actually probably most common the family took care of yes. you yes and uh, my dad looked at it and with it, it came from the idea of this is going to be for the congregation you know we are yeah. separate from the nursing home if you're if if you need the government assistance yeah. you have opportunities if you don't need the government assistance let's make something a little bit more special and that was his business model and it, it turned successful. out being successful. Yeah. So
0: what lessons in business do you think you could take away from your dad? If you could say, hey, this is the number one or two things that I took from my dad, just to, like give you a perfect example. If I had to say the number one greatest thing for, that I took from my parents, and my parents were entrepreneurial people too, I would say it was work ethic the most invaluable lesson they taught me was to work. Nobody ever, you know, Ian Francis, another one of my mentors, says nobody ever drowns in their own sweat. So work ethic was the greatest thing they instilled in me and my sister. And how they instilled it was basically living it. Seeing them work 14 hour days, standing beside them, seeing them take risk on businesses. So that was a gift I was given. Now, as a kid, you probably didn't like some of it. You know, you bitch, you want to go play on Saturday when you had to work. You know what I mean? But that was probably the greatest gift my parents gave me was the ability to have a work ethic, which I think later on in my life served me extremely well because in my industry, I've always been publicly said, I'm not the best horse trainer or clinician. I never had the most talent, I wasn't the best. Where I beat my competition is I outworked them. Yeah. I outsmarted them and I outworked them. And because I wasn't the smartest guy in the room, I had to surround myself with people that were much smarter than me yeah. to help me where I was weak. But that, so if you could answer that question for your own father or parents, what do you think was the greatest gift they might have given you?
1: Well, certainly the work ethic was part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, because both my parents worked there and uh yeah growing up uh he, they'd come home we'd have dinner together and my dad would go back to the office after dinner yes virtually every single night sundays we'd go to church and just and what at, time would he get home 10 10, 10 30, 11 when would he get home um i'm thinking probably nine he'd come home okay. at five leave again at yep. six go back to the nursing home be there till like nine yep be home ten after nine. Yeah. I remember 9. my
0: parents doing very similar things. Yes. Yeah,
1: you know, and this is a—it's a service industry. Yes. It's It's being there matters. You can't just hand it off. It, yeah, you—you you can't run a nursing home from home. Yes, you got to be—you got to
0: be in the trenches.
1: Yeah, and, and then you know, Sundays were—we'd go to church, and after church, we'd go to the nursing home. Sundays was the days the cooks' days off. So my mom cooked the, the meals on Sundays. We served, you know, and, and so I was probably five years old when we first opened, four mm-hmm. or five. So, you know, when I'm six, seven, eight years old, we're going there after church. We had our chores, you know, it's cleaning floors. It's, yeah. And for me, I had to go around when I was real little and empty the waste baskets in every single room. Well, I remember it was like I had 60 grandparents. Yeah, they were all excited. You know, little kids are coming into the room, you know, that's and we're awesome. talking. And of course, they're giving me their candy, you know, and everything else. <laughs> I, was like, I love it. You know, like this, this didn't work. This is fun. I yeah. mean, how do you beat
0: this? Even if you're picking up waste, it's still fun. Yeah, yeah
1: it yeah. was fun. And that's that's how I remember my childhood. That's was awesome. Working at these things and and, as we got older, you know we would do the jobs that nobody else would do or didn't want other people to do and It was always the cleaning and yeah. that type of thing and mm-hmm. But I remember one night in i think I was early in high school before I could drive you know the sewer system, yeah, clogged, you yeah. know, so my dad and I are opening up in the basement of this building the the clean out, you know, and we're standing there with rotor rooters and mm-hmm. trying to clean it out. And I'm thinking, oh my God, is there, there is nothing worse than this. Yes. You know? And why don't we hire somebody to do this? And, and he's going, at 10 o'clock at night? No, you can't hire anybody. We're here doing it. You yes. Know? And yes. That's, you know, and there's something that has to be done. See, what I like, about,
0: what I like about that is, is <clears throat> it doesn't sound like your dad asked you to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. And I've always been big about that in my, my business. I've had, you know, different employees might say I'm an ass a piece of shit, whatever you want. But one thing they'll never say about me is if I, if I told them to dig the ditch, I sure should do it myself. I would never ask anybody to do anything that I hadn't done myself or hadn't done a lot by myself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I knew how long it took. I knew how difficult it was. I knew it was inconvenient, but you got to be willing to get in the trenches. You got it, that's some of the most successful, well really about the only real successful generational businesses I've ever seen. I often find it interesting how very few businesses get past the third generation of family. When one common thing doesn't happen, the kids don't start at the fucking bottom. They don't start at the bottom in the mailroom doing the shittiest jobs, cleaning the toilets, whatever the hell it is. And then through grade school, high school, college, young adult they work their way up 20 years later to the top and when they do that those businesses will typically go on generational businesses but when they don't put them in the bottom and don't make them stir the shit and 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 don't make them basically pay their dues they piss the money away yeah you know i love watching yeah. the history channel and and mm-hmm. and those type of youtube tv shows about history and things and i love watching how much genera- generational wealth just got pissed away within three generations of people not doing that simple task of starting their kids at the bottom. So your dad kind of knew that. So you would they probably say- that.
1: And he certainly taught us yes. that. You know, both my boys started their first jobs, were going out to Cirrus and, you know, Ryan would have been in eighth grade, how are you, 13 in mm-hmm. eighth grade. And every day he had to go wash the bugs off uh, all the airplanes on the ramp and wash all the windows. And I'd take a couple hours, but at thirteen, every day you got to yep. go do that. Then he was a janitor. He was cleaning the bathrooms every night after school through high school and mowing the lawns. And see, I then think when a, he got into college, he got his pilot's license. And then and see, I think in, Dale, this, I
0: think it's important that employees see that. Yeah, I think it's important that other employees that work for you see your kid at the bottom and earn their respect from their peers as they grow older. Yep and go up the chain. I think that's an important part. Maybe I look more into that, but I think that's an important part. And it
1: is. And it it was important to me that they learned that... And they're not working for me. Yes. They're working for somebody else who expects them...
0: To get the job done.
1: To get the job done. Mm -hmm. And in reality, probably a little harder on them than than they would otherwise, just because, you know, "Ah, it's the boss's son. That's right. I'm going to make sure he works. And both boys did that, and they both... Learn so
0: let, let, let's back up a little bit here. So your dad had the entrepreneurial spirit. He taught you how to work hard. Any other lesson you could say, one other great lesson you would take from your dad or your parents as a kid growing up before we move on?
1: Um, yeah, there were two things that he always said. Mm-hmm. And one I kind of alluded to already. He said, don't ever do anything just for the money. Okay, fair enough. Do what you want to do. Do what you love doing. Do what you're passionate about. Do it really well, and the money will come. Okay. Don't do it for the money. Okay. And then when Alan and I went to them with this crazy idea of we're going to go take on Cessna, we're going to go build airplanes, uh, the other thing he said is, you know, well, you're young. You've got nothing, so you got nothing to lose. That's right. Go do it. Yeah, you that's know, awesome. You've you got nothing to lose.
0: And that's something that is important, is supportive parents. I, I left high school, Dale, at 15. Who encourages their kid to leave high school at 15? I have no uh, high school education, have no college education. I can barely spell my own name. I can read at a fifth grade level. But I made a lot of fucking money. But my parents let me leave school at 15. And not only let me, encouraged me because I had passion for what I wanted to do. I was really good at it. I was insane insistent. I wanted to go rule the world. You know what I mean? And they didn't want to stop me. Now, looking back on it, it kind of seems crazy that your parents would encourage that. And I'm not trying to say every 15-year-old kid needs to leave school by any means. But what I am saying is that the parents' support was a big deal. So your dad telling you, you're young, you got nothing to lose. And that's one of the greatest things about being that age is you're kind of ballsy because you got nothing to lose. As I got older in life, I don't take anywhere near the risk now, financially or just in life that I took in my 20s and 30s. Right, exactly. You know what I mean?
1: And it's interesting with your, your school analogy. So, Ellen and I are talking about, we're going to start… So, you
0: finished high school, you and your brother?
1: It, we finished high school, finished college.
0: Mm-hmm. And… Um, what did you go to college for, if you don't mind me asking?
1: I studied economics and finance. Okay. So, I've got a, de- a degree in economics and then a degree in uh, business with a finance emphasis.
0: Okay. What about your brother? So,
1: he studied uh, economics and physics. Okay,
0: right up. So you get through so, college and you go home and say what?
1: Well, actually it was before I was through. So Alan graduated from college and he working in the administ- administration office of Ripon College where he went to school. When I, I start school, I go to the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, which is a smaller yep. Division Three school in Wisconsin. And a couple of years into it, you know, I can go back and say how we actually got started. But I mean, I'm in school for a couple of years and finally figured it out. We're going to go build airplanes and I want to build airplanes. And I remember sitting down with my parents saying, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to quit school and we're going to go start this company. And they said, no, you're not going to quit school. You're going to finish school. Then you can go start the company. (laughs) And that's good advice. But you are going to finish school. You, two years doesn't make a difference. Yes. Finish school. So we actually started the company. I, I graduated in December of 1983. And in January of 1984, we started Cirrus Aircraft.
0: And how did you get the name Cirrus? Where would that word come from? How would that name come up?
1: Well, Cirrus is a cloud. Okay. It's the fastest fair weather cloud. So um, as a pilot, Cirrus clouds are... Are good. That means there aren't any storms, you know, and it's typically uh, smooth sand. It, it's a beautiful day, and you'll mm-hmm. see those wispy high clouds. That's a nice day. The name came up, um, you know, eighty, eighty-one time frame. where, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about building airplanes. You know, we're we're dreaming as kids do. I'm in college. Alan is probably out of college at that time. Uh, We spend our summers in southern Wisconsin. We had a, uh, by this time we had a vacation place, but it was a farm. Mm -hmm. And we're at the farm, that's where we could play with airplanes. And my grandparents live in Chicago and we were going to fly down to Chicago. You know, it's weekends or Sunday, you know, it's pretty common to go to the grandparents on Sunday for, for dinner. And we were gonna fly, we called uh, flight service to get the weather brief from the FAA. And their weather brief was, oh, it's gonna be terrible, it's storms, there's no way you can make this flight uh, VFR visually. There's no way you can make this flight. And I was like, ah, okay, now we gotta drive. We're gonna drive two and a half hours down there to have lunch with our grandparents and two and a half hours back instead of flying. And on that day, the only cloud we saw all day was a Cirrus cloud. <laughs> so we're in a car when we should be flying and seeing the Cirrus clouds. And I was like, well, I'm not, not exactly sure what the business would be, but it's going to be called Cirrus. That's awesome. And it came up from the two of us sitting in the car driving down That's there. Awesome. So here's the question I really want to ask you.
0: What gave you the vision or the insight to say, you're gonna build planes. Did you see what the industry was doing that wasn't as good or, okay, let me give you an example. When I got to America and and somebody says, how did you become a clinician, teach people about horses, you know? I went to my first equine expo and I saw my competitors out there doing what they do. And I was 21 at the time. And I looked at them and said, if this is what you think's good, you ain't seen nothing yet. Like I saw a weakness there. I, I saw if this is what you're getting off on, I can do better than this, this is nothing. And these guys are 45, 46 years old, I was 21. There was nobody in my age group willing to attack it. So I said, hell, by the time, I, by the time these guys retire, who's gonna take their spot? Who's gonna give them the run for their money? Now I didn't wait around for them to retire, I pushed them out. Yep. But what gave me the vision to do what I do is the fact that I saw my competition and, and, and it'll come across as arrogant, but I don't give a shit. I didn't fucking think much of them. And I said, this ain't nothing, I can do better than this. So that's what gave me the spark to get going and, and move on that deal and make money, blah, blah, blah. I wanna know what you and your brother saw in the aviation industry, because this thing's already up and running. There's lots of planes, lots of plane manufacturers, etc. I wanna know what made you and your brother say, we're gonna make a better plane, we're gonna make a different plane. I don't know, but I wanna know what made you two have the balls to say, we're gonna get into an industry as young 20 year olds and compete against million dollar, multi-million dollar, maybe even billion dollar companies back then, I don't know. Yep. What gave you that vision that you wanted to get in the race? What, what did you see that was a niche or a hole that you could get into?
1: Uh, there's, there's a few things. Um so when when I turn fifteen we buy a, a little tail dragger the airplane that I learned to fly in then and we keep it uh in a little strip which is basically a hayfield yeah. north of town. You know, and that's what I learned to fly in. That's what spurred my enthusiasm from aviation, going from yeah, you know, model building and I'll fly around a little and you know, you ask what I did in college. Yeah. I thought I'd Become a banker so I could afford to fly. Yeah, Literally, that yeah. was you yeah. know, I want to fly. Mm-hmm. And um, in high school, just before graduating from, from high school, I'm on a camping trip with one of our friend, w- one of my friends in northern Wisconsin. And it's uh, Memorial Day weekend, and driving home on Monday, you know, last week of school starts uh, the next day. We stop at little airports to see if there's any cool airplanes. We're stopping at airports on the way back, and I find a wrecked airplane there. So I went to the into the fixed base operator, you know, the, the little FBO there, and asked who owned the airplane, and they gave me the the name of the couple that own it, and they're a mile down the road. Drive down the road, knock on the door. Woman comes to the door and says, "You know, I see you've got you own the wrecked airplane, sitting out there." and you know, I'm kind of interested, and in, I'm sure this isn't exactly how it went. But the way I remember it was like, "You're interested in sold." You know, it was like <laughs> take the of shit off. Our heads. Yeah, I never saw the husband. It was just like she's there, sold. You know, you can have it. We bought this airplane. Now we, it's all banged up, correct? Yeah, it had flipped over in a storm. Okay, so it's it's all intact, but it's sitting upside oh, so down. so it
0: wasn't flying when it crashed. It, it was on flying. the ground, and the yep. wind blew it ass overhead. head. Okay, yep. right yep. now I'm with. You.
1: You know, so go home, tell Alan, you know, we're going to buy an airplane. At this point, what I'm thinking is we already own an airplane. We own a little two-seat tail dragger. This is another two-seat tail dragger. It's a champ, you know, different model, but it's, in a sense, the same market. And uh, the plan was we were going to rebuild this thing over the summer between high school and starting college, sell it at the end of the summer, and... Make, Make our first yeah. fortune in aviation. I love it. And it took two and a half years to rebuild it. <laughs> uh, it should have things that should have been replaced. We couldn't afford, therefore we fixed things that yeah shouldn't have been fixed. And mm-hmm. you know, in the end, we had a flying wrecked airplane. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: But that spurred my enthusiasm on to now. I want to build airplanes because and you saw flaws in it. No, you no, that was at this point, it was still just, this is cool. This is what I want to do. Just fun to do. This enjoyable. is what I want to do. And we went to Oshkosh. Oshkosh is uh, the home of the Experimental Aircraft Association, okay. the EAA. They have a summer week-long fly-in event. It's the largest aviation event in the world. Mm-hmm. Half a million, the three quarters of a million people come every year to this event. It's the Experimental Aircraft Association. So there is there is a segment of the aviation industry, which is kind of like the last free enterprise place in the world of anything, yeah. where it spurs on that enthusiasm to design and build your, your own airplane. It's going there to these shows that I realize, okay, this can be done. Right. We can go design an airplane. And so, so what was yeah, aviation?
0: Confidence and, that that they can be done.
1: Uh, confidence, uh, seeing a path, yeah. seeing a market. Yeah,
0: seeing a market.
1: Yeah. So, so my path was, you know, I want to learn to fly, or I want to be a pilot. Then building, rebuilding an airplane, I was like, okay, I want to work on airplanes. I want to build airplanes. Alan and I bought a kit plane. Then, so we're going to learn how to put together. Somebody else's design, but we're going to learn how to put that together. And as a couple of kids, you know, we, we have no money. Mm. So... How old are you? Uh, I would have been, well, when, when we bought the, I was 17 when we bought the wrecked airplane. So i would have been 19 okay. when we bought the, the kit plane. You know, at that point, where do you get money? Parents. Yeah. You know, yeah. Go, we had $200. That was the deposit for the kit. We put the deposit down in the kit, went back home and said, you know, Mom, Dad, we need to borrow money. You know? yeah. And they they then started with the, you know, we've all said it, yes, you are, have kids, you know. Yeah. What do you think we are, the bank? Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what do we all think parents are, the yeah, bank? Of that. So they made us write a business plan Love it. on why they should lend us money and how that would be good for our education and future development into whatever we wanted to do and they literally said if they make us write a business plan we'll never do it and this whole crazy idea will go away love and it. they won't have to worry about it well we wrote a business plan see i've and never
0: heard of that i think that's fucking brilliant yeah. that's skin in the game yeah. it was, your first, it was yeah. your first hurdle
1: it was your first hurdle
0: to make you and your brother get some skin in the game yeah yeah love it that's smart parents right there
1: we uh we bought this kit plane now you so did back the proposal the, they liked it they I, <laughs> my dad actually admitted years later he never read it it was like 30 pages on why this was gonna be so <laughs> he was probably pissed off and he gave it to him no he <laughs> he said he was so amazed that we actually did it he lent us the money because we actually did here he goes i never actually read it <laughs> but you. You presented it, and mm-hmm. you had your charts and your facts and your figures they it. Like, ah, all right. You know, so, so they lent us the money. To buy but, this kit plane. To buy a kit plane. Now, the EAA is so important to our development and our growth. Kind of like you go into the, your first short, mm-hmm. shows, yep. seeing an industry and learning about it and say, seeing the opportunity. Mm-hmm. The EAA showed us that opportunity. So when I was saying it's kind of that last area of freedom, mm-hmm. the FAA has rules on what it takes to become, to build a, an experimental airplane. And those rules are, you have to actually do the work yourself. Yeah. You have to use aircraft quality hardware. You know, you can't go to Menards and put a three quarter inch screw into yeah. something. But if you, if you use aircraft, Hardware, you know, and you do the work, and you, you, you know, take pictures of it. You prove what you're doing. They basically can't not license it. So I kind of describe it as I could go take an aircraft engine and bolt it to a tree stump, and if I use aircraft quality bolts and bolt it to that tree stump, they can't say you can't go try and fly it. That's awesome. Yeah. So go try and you know you're going to kill yourself. Kill
0: yourself is up to you.
1: But there is no rules against killing yourself. That's right. So the experimental aircraft industry in the late 70s and early 80s is developing what is called a kit plane. Mm-hmm. Somebody designs an airplane, they put together all the parts it takes, so they sell it to a person with a set of plans, and you build it in your garage. i got a couple your, of that are doing that now. Yep. yep, your garage or your hangar. Well, growing up, enthused about the aviation industry through the 1970s, the industry was growing very, very quickly. We produced, we, the industry produced over 120,000 new airplanes in that decade. Best decade since the war, since World War II, and certainly the best decade since. But in 1980, well, 78 was the, the top year with 18,000 general aviation airplanes sold. In 79, it was very close to that, 17,000. So 1980, it was like 10,000 airplanes. 81, 6,000 airplanes. So is that 80, the interest rates? The air, the the market plummeted. Yeah, but why? The In, money? Interest rates okay. was part of it. Uh, um, you look at... Interest rates fuel the economy. There's a lot of reasons why an industry is going to f- fall off. But to go from 18,000 and in a couple of years be at three, oh. four thousand, and in 1988 it was the bottom of the industry at less than a thousand airplanes. Mm. Actually, it was less than 900 airplanes. So in a decade, you're down to about what is that, five, six percent. Yeah. Of what the industry was mm. well we're watching it crash there's insurance was skyrocketing interest was skyrocketing as uh production went down for for a company mm. they still have to cover all of their fixed costs and everything else so they keep raising the cost right and on top of that companies like cessna and beechcraft and piper and mooney and all these companies, they were not putting their money into developing the entry-level airplanes. They weren't spending their money developing single-engine piston airplanes.
0: Because the market was crashing? They didn't
1: think there was any money there? What was the reason for that? They didn't think that there was money there. Mm -hmm. So the industry, you know, and you can look back and say, well, they they made the right business decisions, or they made right or wrong. They made this business decision. Cessna, they're building jets. They start building jets. Piper and Beach are building twin engine turboprops, basically, yep. a jet engine spinning a propeller. They are, all of the companies are investing, growing into bigger, better, more capable, far Foster more planes. expensive airplanes. And the lower end Love it. was not changing. Being addressed. So a Cessna 182 in 1980 is basically identical to a Cessna 182 that was built in 1970. Mm-hmm. Except you're paying now 80 dollars or $90,000 for this new airplane. A decade ago, it was $10,000. And the used airplane on the market, then, you know, the value of the used airplanes is going up really fast, too, right. because there's no development. There's no reason to buy a new airplane it's no better why would you buy a new one if your 10 year old airplane is a quarter of the price and it's identical yeah so we sat there and said well that's why the that's why it's crashing all these other things are are aspects of factors of driving it down but no other industry went from eighteen thousand or say hundred percent down to five percent right. in a decade I mean, there's and, other and you than, and your
0: brother, how old were you when you guys figured this out? When you guys well, kind of came the eighty eighty one
1: 81 time frame where, when we're saying there is a market here. So, you're ready we're to start go your do business. This. That's what yeah. made you see it. Yeah. And that's, that's where we'd say, okay, there really is an opportunity. We can go build a new, modern, better airplane than what the industry is producing. We're going to do it in this kit industry side. So, the kit industry also as we looked at it we're building airplanes that were fun to build fun to fly we're looking at it and saying that's filling a niche you know we bought one and it was fun to fly great it was an aerobatic airplane and loved having it but it was not competing with an old Cessna 172 yeah. or 182 we wanted a four seat on a something that you take a family with yeah. we wanted to fly cross-country we just wanted to fly faster better so we we came at it so when we start the company I'm 23 years old and just graduated from college so just spent a whole bunch of money having this piece of paper from a university that says I'm pretty smart
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> at that young age complexity is cool, mm-hmm. you know. The harder something is, yeah. you know, that's that's neat, you know. Mm-hmm. So complexity was cool. The harder it is to fly, that's all, all cool. We, so we built a kit plane that was the biggest, fastest, most capable, most expensive, hardest to build, hardest to fly, hardest to maintain, mm-hmm. coolest airplane on the market. Right. Bar none, this thing was, it Badass. it got all the attention because it was so unique and so cool. And it's what a 23-year-old comes up with, you know, yeah. all of these things are cool. From doing it, we learned that, you know, being a very, very unique, coolest airplane is not the way to sell yeah. a lot of airplanes. Yes. An airplane that's hard to fly is not a way to sell it especially in this industry when it's hard to build. So being the most of anything is puts you in a pinnacle that maybe there's a, a small
0: market. So here's what's funny about that. I, I heard that and what I heard in my industry was, I've always told my apprentices for years, because I always trained lots of young people to do what I do for a living. And my goal was to always make them better than me and, and so they didn't need me. And the kids that could ride a horse really well and had a lot of natural talent, I always told them that's your biggest downfall too, because they might have a horse kind of galloping across the pasture pretty fast and they can sit it real good. They're talented. They got good motor skills. Their coordination is skilled. And I'd stop them and say, do you want to go broke? And they'd say, what do you mean? I said, the lady that's going to write you a fucking check. She can't do that. That 65 year old lady that's going to give you $10,000 for that horse. She can't go that fast. Retrain it. Get it to go slow. Get it to be comfortable. Get it to be safe. Dead people don't write checks. That's one of my famous sayings, dead people don't write checks. They gotta believe it live for me to get another dollar out of them. So I said, you could, and they'd look at me like I was crazy. Why? He's doing just fine. You're 20 years old with a lot of skill, or at least talent. The lady that's gonna write, no 23 year olds have any money. You know, and let, you know what I mean? As a good rule of thumb, young people are broke for a reason. We're young. Yeah. You know, as a good rule of thumb, we're broke for a reason. It's people 45 to 85 that have got money because we've worked our asses off and saved it, invested it, whatever. So I said, you, you know, you, you must understand who your market is. And a 65-year-old lady cannot do what you're doing right now. So go back and retrain that horse. And that's what I heard you saying. You guys built a kick-ass plane. But there's not any other 23-year-olds with the kind of money you need to get you and your brother financially stable.
1: And that's... Is that right or wrong? Did I, I don't exactly.
0: want to put words into your mouth.
1: No, that's it exactly. You know, we built an airplane that was really hard to build. Yes. But it's really fun to build an airplane. Yes. Except the person who can afford now the most expensive kit on the market. person who can afford that and can afford the time is a very, very small niche. Yes. You know, if you got enough money for this, you probably don't have the time. If you got all the time in the world, you don't have the money to build the airplane. That's right. You know, so, so yeah, we, you know, I look back at it and, and we failed as a kit manufacturer. Okay.
0: So you built several of these planes, you built several of these kits, you tried to get this up and running and, yep. and how many years went by and where did you build these planes? You and your brother?
1: Well, we started in the basement of our barn okay. in uh, Baraboo, Wisconsin. We're just south of there, on, on the the Bear Range. Uh, you know, it's when you talk about support from the the parents. You know, when we're rebuilding the Champ, our first wrecked airplane, uh, my dad up at the farm, we turned a shed into a place where he could park his car. Yeah. Well, guess what? Got pushed out when the we brought car. in an airplane. <laughs> the car's out, the airplane's in. He then builds a. Garage attached to the farmhouse, and you know the first rule was no airplane parts in the garage. It's for his cars, no airplane parts. (laughs) Then they're on vacation someplace, and it's like ah, it's going to take us two weeks to cover this airplane. We'll be done before they ever get back. They'll never know. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) It Takes a lot longer than two weeks to cover the airplane. Of course, they come back, garage full of airplane parts. Like, whatever happened to that rule? You know, like, well, we. (laughs) <laughs> Didn't think you'd know that we broke you So at that point, then he goes, okay, see that barn? You guys can have the barn. We kicked the cows out. We poured a new floor in the basement of the barn, and I like, I don't care what you do in there. But that's where it stays. But that's where it's at. So the barn became where we started. We started in a basement of a barn. I love it. And I thought, we'd never need more space than this. Yes. This yeah. room is huge, you know. Yes. And, Real quickly, you know, so yeah. you, to, to build and we're building a composite airplane, fiberglass airplane. You start from the outside and work your way in. Okay, So it's the opposite of build building you... a house. You
0: know, a house, technically, you start in the inside and build it out. Well, no, you build the frame of the house. Well, what I'm saying is, then, is, is mm-hmm. the inside of the house, you know, the concrete foundation, the walls, etc., and you work your way out to the landscaping and oh, yeah. yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? You, you build, when I say out like that, you kind of build out like that.
1: Well, we build, you know, we, we take foam blocks, glue them together, carve them by hand into a shape that we like. Then you cover that shape with fiberglass, that becomes the plug. From that, you make a tool that you come off, and now you can take several parts out of the tool. From that tool, now you pull out a, the skins, the, the structure, you glue it together, you know. So, we're So how are you you guys
0: making a living when you're building these first few kit planes and trying to get this cool badass plane off the ground? How are you making a living? How are you eating? How are you surviving? Where are you sleeping? You're poor? What's going on here? How, you know, because when you're trying to build a business, you got to eat at the same time. So do you have part-time jobs or you're in it or you're living on mac and cheese? What are you doing?
1: Yep. When we started the company, we didn't have any other jobs. It was a hundred percent in. We're working in a barn, living in the house okay. right there. With your parents. We had no well, it's a weekend place. Okay. You know, we're there, right. okay. Full time. They come up on the weekends. Yep. They are working. Yeah. You know, so uh we had no rent. Yep, fair enough. You know, yeah, it was a lot of mac and cheese and you know yep. whatever yep. mom would bring to the Bring your meals, bring, yeah. Bring on the weekend, you know, would last all week, that type yeah. of thing. My uncle, following that entrepreneurial side of the of the family, my uncle had a boat company up in in Moore, Minnesota, and he built large fiberglass boats. And we used to go up there with empty five gallon buckets and he would lend us the resin. You know. Not that we were ever going to give it back, but <laughs> we got family. the resin and fiberglass and oh. everything from him. Because he'd bring in resin on a tanker yeah, yeah. load for the boat company. You know, and we're up there with 20 gallons, you know, four or yeah. five buckets. And it's like, i oh, take it and get out of here. Stop bothering me. Yeah, 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 yeah. You it. know, so the, the tools were almost for free. Yes. When we started building our prototype, we would go to junkyards, airplane junkyards and the engine came out of a junkyard, you know, the, our control systems, we you know, we would scavenge, we'd go through wrecked airplanes and we'd find parts that would work and you know, you're paying pennies yes. on on the dollar and that's how we built that first prototype. Literally through the junkyards, through my uncle giving us the the materials and living at home. And we worked every single day. Even Christmas. I mean, every there is no such thing as a day off. There's no such thing as an evening off. No. A lot of people don't get
0: that about business Mm -hmm. owners. They they think it's a five day a week deal.
1: No. 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 It's every day. Yes. All day. When we
0: it is, it is like your kid, isn't it, Dale? It's like oh, a yeah. child. People, yeah. I don't have children myself. And people often ask me why I don't have kids. And I kind of joke and I make a joke, but it's kind of not really a joke. It's kind of serious I say, Down Under Horsemanship was my kid. My yeah. business was my kid. I worried about it. I thought about it 24-7. Yeah. I went to bed thinking about it. I woke up thinking about it. I got threatened by it. I was jealous of it. I, it was my kid. Yeah. It's a 24-hour fucking job. And it's like having, a, that was my child. Sometimes you're proud of it. Other days you want to strangle it. Other days it disappoints you. Other days you wish you got rid of it. You know, that's what a business is in a lot of ways. It's to me, is like a living, breathing child. You have to protect it, have to take care of it. So I, I love that. There's nothing
1: other than a child that has that type of emotional, passionate response. Will yes. you do anything for your kid You'll do anything for your business. Yes. And that's why I always come back to you won't do anything for your business if you're in it just for the money. Mm-hmm. No, it has to be, it, it is your child. You yes. are going to do anything, and like a child, it's 365 days. And, you yeah. know, it's... If it's crying at 1 no, o'clock
0: in the morning, you get up and feed it. And if that business is bitching to you at Sunday at midnight, you're out there taking care of it. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's yeah. a damn good point that people need to understand is it's a, it's a commitment. It's it's a lifestyle. Yeah, And if it's you're not willing to give it that lifestyle, you're going to fail. You know, I had at the last, uh, tour I did, um, I, I had a couple of thousand people show up and, and listen to me and I had about six kids come through my autograph line and, um, They all said, you know, I signed a piece of paper for them, a photo of me, and they all said, you know, give me some inspiration, give me, give me something that will really help me. I want to start my own business. And I said, work harder. I wrote down there, good luck to you, work harder than everybody else. You could see the fucking disappointment in their eyes, Dale. They thought I was gonna say some inspirational bitch, you know, look at the look at the sky and sail to the fucking sunset or some bullshit that's on somebody's inspirational wall in their office. I said, work harder than everybody else yep. because that's the one thing that will beat talent. That's the one thing that'll beat genetics or smarts is outworking everybody. Yep. But it's, and it's the one thing everybody's capable of doing. You said, how many years do you think your brother and you literally work seven days a week? How, how long do you, how many years do you think you two were that committed to that lifestyle?
1: Um, Certainly all the way through the 80s.
0: So 10 years?
1: Yeah, well, Seven? longer than that. Probably, you know, when we were working on our first project to be a certified airplane you know, and by this time we've moved up to to uh, Duluth, Minnesota and Oshkosh, the EAA air show is the event that the industry re- revolves around. Yes, we're yes. trying to hit we're going to introduce our brand-new airplane at Oshkosh, and that's the beginning of July. And I remember one of the guys that's working for us and with us at that time. It was Tuesday evening. And he looked at his watch and he goes, well, I've got my 40 hours in this week. Can I go home? <laughs> nope. Tuesday, no. somebody who yeah. worked for us already yeah. had his 40 hours in. Yeah. That's the way Yes. it was. you know. So how long did it last? I think we were taking Thanksgiving and Christmas yes. off before that. But yes. it was still seven days a week. It
0: is, isn't it? It's like and owning a dairy farm. Those cows are got to get milked. Exactly. Seven days a week. Yep. There's no time off.
1: Yep. And when you are, you know, there are deadlines. And usually the deadlines are financially motivated. When you're producing something, it's like, we got to get this done on this amount of money by this date, or there is no tomorrow. We're losing our ass, yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's either done or don't bother. You I think know, that's so the that's... biggest
0: takeaway I want a young person that's listening to this right now to understand is you better be pr- committed. It's a seven-day-a-week project. It's, it's, you know, I always say this to young, you know, in the gradu- when people graduate my, my academy during the ceremony or speech I give them, I tell them this. I say, here's the deal. This is, you can go to fucking Harvard and spend a couple hundred thousand dollars for what I'm about to tell you in five minutes. You ready? Eight hours a day is going to get a roof over your head and food on the table. That's it. Eight hours a day, five days a week, that's all that's going to get you. Roof over your head, food on the table. It won't get you retired, won't you get you any quality of of lifestyle, et cetera, okay? Ten hours a week, five days a week will get you a roof over your head, food on the table, a little bit of retirement, savings, et cetera, but not a lot. But if you're willing to work 12, 14 hours a day, six days a week, you can get food on the table, roof over your head, and some retirement. If you're willing to be 14, 15 hours a day, seven days a week for several years and bust your ass like that, you know, you can get wealthy. But you got you to be that committed to it. A- unless you're from the Lucky Sperm Club and you're going to inherit a bunch of money, which 99% of entrepreneurials never get. You know, I think there's a stigma in the news and as far as I'm concerned from the liberals that, that all rich people inherited their fucking money. No, most of them didn't. 99.9% of them had to friggin' bust their ass. They had to walk their ass off to get it. You, you know what I mean? You know, they, they took a lot of chances, they took a lot of risks. Very few people come from a lucky sperm club and, and inherit their money. And the ones that typically do, typically piss it away. They don't it's, have it past a generation.
1: Yeah. And this is the message that has to be repeated over and over again there's one thing that I think we saw through the pandemic and probably even just before that it life is not supposed to be this easy yes yeah where you you shouldn't be able to be working at a job and then on you know two in the afternoon go yeah yeah I don't really like it here I'm going to go next door and get the night and have a job yeah I mean that it's not that easy you can't just say Screw it, I don't like this. I'm gonna go next door. Because all of a sudden it's not hard for kids to get a job, and you know, pay is good and it ain't gonna last. No. And all there's gonna be a rude awakening to a lot of people who think, you know, getting the job's easy, and I just I feel like I'm just gonna work from home now. Yeah. Well, guess what? (laughs) That's not the way the world works. Or not businesses aren't efficient. No. When everybody's working at home.
0: Yes, because there's, there's a lot less accountability. So changing subjects here just a little bit. So you and your brother, how many years did it take you two to figure out this cool fucking badass plane you guys invented that was cool as shit, was not going to be, sell- when I say sellable, was not going to get you where you wanted to be? Two years, three years, hard-headed, you saw it quickly. How long did it take you two to figure out this first first race was not going to be the race that took you to the
1: finish line? Well, we didn't we didn't see it quickly.
0: Okay. That's okay. Say it. <laughs> um, the one thing I want about this podcast is people to see where well, you fucked up. You're a successful man. You're very good at what you've done. You've changed an industry, you've changed the world. Tell me and them what you wish you could go back and do differently. So don't hide those things. Say, "Hey, Clinton, we were too pig-headed. We should have given up on year 1 and changed direction, but we went 10 years." That's why I'm asking these questions. Yeah.
1: Well, looking back, our first design was not a successful selling i mean we weren't successful selling it
0: okay so you're making profit no no okay i mean we're
1: covering cost hand to mouth yep i mean barely yes but you know when we first introduced the airplane we had the coolest airplane anybody had ever seen we went to the oshkosh air show with a stack of order forms you know like you know One of us is going to be signing orders. The other is going to be controlling the crowds. You know, that's the, you know, this is the coolest thing. Everybody's going to want one. We left that first air show with no deposit, no order. You know, it was like, hmm. You know, really smart people would have said, oh, screw this, it doesn't work. But then a really smart person wouldn't have ever been successful at this. Because the reason that we ended up being successful, our airplane was... A marketing hit. We're on the cover of every magazine in the aviation industry. Yep. Everybody knows our name. Yep. Nobody wants to buy the airplane, <laughs> but everybody knows Cirrus. Yeah. And so that first year we're using a very conventional engine. Now this is eighty seven, eighty-eight time frame. Aircraft industry is the only industry left in the world that still uses a leaded fuel. And we use that in order to keep the engine from from knocking, that's why you put lead in, because the way an airplane is used from the altitudes, it's a very difficult thing to to solve. So our second airplane was going to be, we're going to put in a a V8, a Chevy V8, we're going to build it up like a NASCAR engine, able to produce, you know, 800 horsepower, but we're only going to run it at 300 horsepower. Therefore, we're not going to be working this engine that hard. Great idea, right? Mm -hmm. 15 hours in the flight test. We had an engine fire, the airplane. We lost the airplane. Alan was in the airplane. He was flying. I was flying Chase. So he takes off on one of the test flights and I pull up next to him. We are climbing out and I looked over and I was like, Alan, there's smoke coming out of the back of the airplane which is not something you want to hear. <laughs> and then it was like, there's flames coming. I see the back of the airplane's on fire. He lands it, puts it down into a field, climbs out, airplane catches fire. It's got a hundred gallons of fuel on board. Burns up to the point where, you know, we're <laughs> we're shoveling it. Yeah, I mean the engine was a molten mm. piece of aluminum there. <clears throat> when we, we were, that was in June. We're getting ready for the Oshkosh Air Show, which mm-hmm. is the end of July. We're going there saying, with this airplane, this engine, this combination, we're going to take over the industry. We've sold a handful of kits, enough to you know, feed find, ourselves. Find a little bit, yeah. But now, this is going to take off. We're going to sell hundreds of them. And we end up burning up the airplane a month before the air show. <laughs> and then you sit there like, okay, it's over. Yes. What do we do? Yeah. Well, we take our original prototype back to Oshkosh. We sell a few more yep. a few more kits. You know, we one,
0: s- one thing about, you said something that I want to comment on about the marketing. You said that you guys were marketing a, a huge success. Everybody knew who you boys were. Everybody knew. Everybody thought it was cool what you were doing. You're obviously innovators and your marketing was on point, but your product wasn't. As far as a sellable, marketable it, deal. I'm not talking about quality, but I'm talking about something that went on. That reminds me of this. One of my mentors, Dan Stewart, who runs the marketing firm that I use. One of the first lessons he taught me about marketing is he said, Clinton, great marketing just prolongs the demise of a bad product. Great marketing just prolongs the demise of a bad product. So if your product is not good, the marketing will carry it for a while, but it'll eventually fail. That's what popped into my head. It's not necessarily that your product was bad. It's just, it, mar- it just wasn't where you needed to go. You changed it clearly. You knew that you built well, this cook-ass plane that nobody wanted to buy. It was badass. everybody was talking about it. You got everybody's
1: attention. We built a great airplane for a market that didn't exist. I love it. That's <laughs> in reality what yeah. it was. Yeah. But that airplane marketed was, I mean, I'm not talking about we had a great marketing department. I mean, it's no, Alan and I selling it. But the town. airplane was so unique yeah. and turned so many heads that everybody in the industry knew it. Yeah. You know, they, they had seen or heard of this airplane. They knew
0: you were here to play. They knew, they, they knew that you got everybody's attention, which should have opened mm-hmm. some doors, did it not?
1: Opened a tremendous amount of doors. Yes.
0: And it's the
1: reason we became successful. So we have a product that was unsuccessful, that was unique enough to market the company and show that the company could be successful with a better product. So through this, you know, we build our second airplane, burns up, we sell a handful of kits instead of hundreds. The third year, uh, so the third year... Would have been uh, say 1990 actually the I'd be the, mm. right, the fourth year we were there but 1990 we were going to go to the air show you know had everything worked out we'd have had our three prototypes now yeah. we've built our third prototype for the the next one and we we're going to have two of our customers who had finished airplanes make it to the the show we we're going to have a fleet of airplanes it was like now we're going to take off again well. That air show in 1990, we had our second, our third, third prototype, prototype, you know, which was a far better airplane than the-
0: You figured out the, what the, weren't wrong with the one, the up. Yeah, yep.
1: you know, it was far better airplane, but we had a conventional engineer. It yep. was like, okay, I understand why aircraft engines are the way they are. <laughs> Put an aircraft engine in. But the two customers that were gonna come ended up not getting the airplane done in time and weren't able, you know, so we're still there just with, a prototype. with our one, prototype. And it was really at that show when we're going, okay, if we're going to do something in this industry, if we're going to stay in the kit plane industry, we can build a far better airplane than a Cessna 182. But it's got to be easy to build. It's got to be simple to fly. It's got to be fall asleep simple to fly. Idiot proof. It's got to be idiot proof. You know, we're going through What it is, and actually on the looks, you know, everybody says the Cirrus, the SRs are the most beautiful airplane. When we were designing the SR, we were looking at it saying, well, we could build this as a kit, but that's not the industry we want to be in. So we're going to go take on Cessna. Yeah, a multi-billion dollar company. yeah, And we're going to go beat them because we just failed as a kit company. Therefore, we can go beat them.
0: See, I love that bulls.
1: And... Craziness,
0: balls, whatever you want to call it, but
1: but when we're designing the airplane and we what we want is a beautiful airplane. But we just had a very unique polarizing, you know, futuristic airplane. We're going. We don't want that again. We want an airplane that isn't polarizing. That people look at and say, okay, that's an airplane. I can that's, see myself being in that. That's the way airplane should look. But we wanted it to still be sexy enough that mm-hmm. you know you leave your Bonanza, and you see our airplane, and now you go back to your Bonanza and go, well, yesterday I had the most beautiful airplane in the world. Now it's it looks old because I see new, modern. So, so we were looking for that emotional response. Love it. How do you design the airplane to get the emotional response? That's not polarizing, mm-hmm. but saying that's a beautiful airplane. And then when we're Designing it, it, so by this time when we're designing the SR20, our our single engine airplane, both Alan and I are married and we have kids. Oh,
0: truly! You're out and of the farm barn by now. we out of the farm a, a warehouse somewhere.
1: Yeah, we we had built a couple of hangars, mm-hmm. you know. We're, so we're as you're going, our... you're slowly
0: <laughs> making a profit, which is feeding your capital, correct? You're making some sort of profit, which we're... is giving you enough money to jump to the next level.
1: Yeah. No, we're no. Cash flowing.
0: You're just cash flowing. I mean, we're we money.
1: We're taking money in. Okay. Um so we're creating we're designing an airplane that's gonna change the industry. And I'll get back to how we fund it in a yeah. second. But while we're working on the airplane, we're both married and we have kids. So our attitudes towards I want to have a cool airplane, and I don't care how complex it is, I don't care how hard it is to fly. Mm. All of that's changed now when you got your family in the yeah, airplane. safety. And the design requirements on the SR-20 was that my wife had to want to fly. Love it. And that's the key to our success. And that simple statement, nobody else in the industry said, my wife has to want to fly. Mm-hmm. It's not... It's not acceptable to say she's willing to fly. She'll put up with flying. It has to be, she wants to go. And it literally, it's gotta be, the non-pilot has to come away saying, if we can't get there in that airplane, we're not, it's just not worth going because I'm no longer gonna put up driving. And these things were, so at that time, Designing airplanes, well, actually, all through history, you design for the pilot, right? Who's buying the airplane? The pilot. Yeah, not really. But that's the way we design airplane. Why do you fly? To get from point A to point B faster than something else. So speed was everything, Mm -hmm. you know, and how fast can you go on? How little fuel? And do you want a nice looking airplane for the pilot? But it really doesn't matter how complex it is. If the pilot can fly it, that's okay. I learned real quickly after I was married, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. Patty's parents live in central Wisconsin. We're up in Duluth, Minnesota. It's a five-hour drive to go down to the grandparents. Or it's an hour and 20 minutes in an airplane. And she'd rather sit in the car for five hours than in an airplane for an hour 20. Then you sit back and go, well, I can make the airplane faster. What if we get there in an hour and 15 minutes instead of five hours? No, you're not getting it. The time doesn't matter. It's a safety thing. It's safety, it's comfort. Safety and comfort. Safety is going to be implied. You have to be safe, but we obviously did things different on that. But you know, cutting five minutes off, if you're miserable for an hour and 20 or you're miserable for an hour and 15, the answer is going to be no. So speed didn't matter. So we have to change everything about the impression the emotional impression that you get in an airplane. And that's what we drove for. How do you sit in the airplane? How do you get in and out of the airplane? Where do your hands go? What do you you touch? What does the person in the right side see, touch, feel? Airplanes typically have a big panel. They're up high because it's full of instruments and all of this stuff. Well, we are flying around in a Cessna 310, which is a twin engine six-seat, great airplane. Yeah, I mean, capable, two engines, it's safe, de-ice equipment, it's fast, it'll go, you know, yep. 190 knots. It's Everything about this is great. And I looked at my wife, and she goes, well, I'd still rather drive. And I was like, why would you want to drive instead of this big, comfortable, great airplane? The answer that came back was, you know, after we're, we talked about it for a while, she goes, well, I'm not comfortable in the airplane because I don't think you know how to fly it properly. And I'm saying like, what do you mean I don't know? I'm a great pilot. How could you say I don't know? <laughs> not for allowing a wife to tell a husband yeah. where you're a piece I, of shit. <laughs> I, I'm a great pilot.
0: I love it. Clinton's grabbing a cocktail and we'll be right back. Get yourself one and enjoy this short clip. That's what I laugh you. <laughs> about. You go to the Rain and and if you're a young kid walking into the Rain and you go out in the parking lot, and there's $500,000 trucks and trailers and rigs everywhere. Oh, yeah. You'd think, oh, my God, there's millions in this business. Psst, what you don't know is 90% of them are up to their eyeballs in debt. They're all trying to keep up with the Joneses. They're all yep. trying to keep up. That's one thing I loved about Bob Loomis. Bob Loomis is a famous guy in the Rain and World and bred phenomenal horses. And you know, He'd show up to a horse show with a pretty damn modest – 25-year-old Sooner trailer. But he'd unload a million and a half dollars worth of horses out of it. Yeah. Well, other guys will show up to the horse a horse show with a $350,000 rig and, and unload a $40,000 donkey at the back of it. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say? Like, oh, Lo- Loomis got it. He he knew his value was in horse flesh and what he could sell and having the best mm-hmm. horses. He didn't have to have the best truck, the best trailer. If you went to Loomis's old ranch that he had, it was very modest, almost a little bit run down even. Yeah. But I sure as shit know that that when he was in his peak, you went there for the very best horses. So you might walk out of there with a 500 Hundred dollars dollar three-year-old you know what yeah. i mean so so there's there's a there's a lot of smoke and mirrors when it comes to the horse industry a lot is that you'd think there's a lot of money in it but in reality most people are up to their eyeballs in debt
1: every passenger will ask every pilot every time they take off now again i'm, I'm backing up 30 years yep but the questions were where are we Because before we had moving maps and the screens.
0: GPS and all this shit, yep.
1: Before we had that. You're back old school with a map. You you got a map in your lap and you're triangulating between a radio beacon. Nowhere's near where you're actually going, looking at round gauges. So the passenger has no idea where we are in reality. He can't look up and say, I know exactly where I am. So they are going to ask, where are we? and in an old airplane. They're small, they're noisy, they're hot in the summer, they're cold in the winter. It, you know, the, the person's sitting there afraid anyways, they think, well, okay, this pilot's not that smart, It must be lost, at least with my wife. She's looking over at me going, you really didn't know how to fly this. We must be lost, where are we? Then she'd ask, well, how long do I have to put up? When are we going to get there? Because how long do I have to put up with
0: the uncomfortable.
1: this in an airplane? And then the third question, in a sense, and it's maybe not as much question as the, the third aspect, a passenger will, will stare at the fuel gauge the entire time because they're sitting there going, we're lost. And if we're lost, we really don't know how long we're gonna be here or where we're going, we're just gonna accidentally stumble across an airport, hopefully. So they stare at the fuel gauge, going, we're gonna run out of gas. So when we started design, well, we designed that to answer those questions. And this is coming up with a conversation with my wife.
0: It was your wife that kind of got this ball rolling in your head, those three questions, did they come from your wife or some of them from her or? No, those were the
1: questions she always asked. it hit reality when she's going, I don't think you know how to fly the airplane. Yeah. And it, it came back to we're in a twin engine airplane. And we were proud of the fact that we had all the instrumentation duplicated on the co-pilot side. Everything. This plane was decked out. And she's in there going, well, when we're flying, she'd look at me. You know, you know you're paying attention to your engine and your instruments. She goes, you never pay attention to my engine and my instruments. And then you go through, well, you know, all that instruments really don't have to be there. They're just duplicates. You know, Show and tell. You know, so she'd sit in the plane, afraid to touch anything, thinking if it's in an airplane, it's there for a reason. And I'm explaining, ah, it doesn't really have to be there. It's just duplicate. And she's going, if it doesn't have to be there, why is it there? Well, it's, it could, well, I don't know why it's there. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> So it was back to how do you make her be comfortable? How do I make her be comfortable? She thinks I'm lost. She's wondering how long you have to put up with this uncomfortable, you know, this environment. Staring at the fuel gauge, afraid to move because she might touch something important. I was like, you're right. None of that makes sense. We have to change. We have to make an airplane feel more like a car because that's the way we're used to travel. We all understand travel in a car. Yep. So then from that point on, we're going to shape the panel. you are going to focus everything at the pilot, specifically. There's still controls. You can still fly from the right. But you don't have everything front. You got to look over the left. Yep. It's not a big deal. You shape it. You make it feel the way that a car feels. And then you put in computers to do what the passenger is thinking. Now, it's in there. It sure makes life as a pilot easier. But everything, when we started designing the instrumentation and all of the flat panel design started to come out and start working on these things, it's important to the pilot, but I already know how to fly. Mm -hmm. So it's not changing my ability to fly. It changes my ability to be able to fly. And I mean that because when we came out with the SR-20 with a computer screen in the middle, My wife then could sit there and look at the screen. There'd be a line on a screen with a destination and an airplane on the line. Could look at that and say, okay, we're not lost.
0: We're on the right track.
1: I see a clock that says when we will get there. So, okay, I got one hour left that I have to be in here. And more important than a good fuel gauge, because that's what, you know, the industry pushes. Uh, My new gauge is more accurate. You know what? Nobody cares. Mm Nobody cares how much fuel you have on board. All that matters is, do you have enough fuel on board? Yes. (laughs) So there'd be a totalizer that says, when we hit this destination, we still have 25 gallons. Then she could look up at that and say, oh yeah, we got plenty of fuel and we're not going to get lost. And I no longer have all the crap in front of me that I'm afraid to touch. And we're in nice, comfortable bucket seats. And we're sitting very high with a very low instrument panel so she can see forward. The other thing is, in airplanes, people get sick. Yeah. Well, three dimensions is what creates that tendency. But what really creates that tendency, or what stops that, is if you can see the horizon, mm-hmm. you're less likely to get sick. Yeah. So in the other airplanes that we had flown in the past, you know, the instrument panels up here, high. Kids come along, my wife's in the back seat, she can't see forward, It have a high wing, you can't see out. Anything other than a perfect day, she's sick. Now she's back there sick, afraid we're lost, gonna run out of gas in an airplane that you're sweating in the summer. So it's change. Our design was all around changing the emotional response that you get from the passenger. When I say it's always the pilot who buys the airplane, it's almost never the pilot who buys the airplane. We as pilots think that we get those choices, but we all answer to somebody else. Mm-hmm. There's an impression that we are making on somebody. For me, it's a five-foot eight blonde that I'm married to. But it, it's a wife, it's parents, it's kids, mm-hmm. it's partners, it's board of directors, mm-hmm. it's uh, clients. yes. There's somebody, there's a reason that you've got this airplane. And we said we have to design an airplane that takes all of the people and turns them from no, you don't need an airplane to yes, it's okay to have an airplane. Yes. And Preferably,
0: by, let's have another one.
1: And let's have another one. Yeah. And by changing the requirements on the airplane from an airplane that has to go X fast or do mm-hmm. other things, the requirement on the airplane was that the person sitting in the right seat to want to, to be, be there. There.
0: Today's episode was filmed at and produced by Innercut Productions, marketing by Stewart and Associates, and organized and administrated by Down Under Horsemanship. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button, and I'll see you next time, mate. Cheers.